Chapter 8 of The False Faces. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Meg Cowan. The False Faces by Louis Joseph Vance. Chapter 8 Off Nantucket. Upon the authors of that commotion, Lanyard wasted no consideration whatever. Let them knock and clamor, he had more urgent work in hand, and knew too well the penalty were he stupid enough to unbolt to them. Their bodies would damn the doorway hopelessly, insistent hands would hinder him, innumerable importunate inquiries would be dinned at him, all immaterial in contrast with this emergency, a catechism one would need an hour to satisfy and all attempts would be futile to make them understand that, while they plagued him with futile questions, a murderer and spy and thief was making good his escape, being afforded ample opportunity to slough all traces of his recent work and resume unchallenged his place among them. No, if by any freak of good fortune, any exertion of wit or daring, that one were to be apprehended, it must be within the next few minutes. It could only be through immediate pursuit." nor did the adventurer waste time debating the better course. With him, whose ways of life were ceaselessly beset by instant and mortal perils, each with its especial and imperative demand upon his readiness and ingenuity, action must ever press so hard upon the heels of thought as to make the two seem one. For that matter, the whole transaction had been characterized by almost unbelievable rapidity and that square opening of the window-port was hardly vacant when Lanyard sprang to his feet. The fugitive had barely time to find his own upon the outer deck before Lanyard leaped after him. The first thumps upon the panels of his door were still echoing when he thrust head and shoulders out of the port and began to pump the automatic at a shadow fleeing aft upon that narrow breadth of planking between the rail and wall. Then, at the third shot, the automatic jammed upon a discharged shell. Exasperated, the adventure cast the weapon from him, shrugged hastily out of his unfastened coat and waistcoat, and hitched tight his belt, and clambered through the port. Dropping to the deck, he turned in time to see the fugitive dart around the shoulder of the superstructure. As Lanyard gained the after-rail of the promenade deck, a man standing on the boat deck at the head of the companion ladder greeted him with pistol fire. He dodged back, untouched, and instantaneously devised a stratagem to cope with this untoward development. Overhead at the side, a lifeboat hung on its davits, ready for emergency launching. The gap in the rail, which filled when normally swung inboard, spanned only by a length of line, and the darkness in the shadow of the boat was dense, an excellent screen. Climbing upon the rail, Lanyard grasped the edge of the deck overhead and drew himself up undetected by his quarry, whom he espied still holding the head of the companion ladder, hidden from the bridge by the after-deck house, standing ready to shoot Lanyard should he attempt to renew the pursuit by that approach. At the same time, Carl seemed mysteriously occupied with some object or objects in whose manipulation he was hampered to a degree by the necessity under which he labored of holding his pistol ready and dividing his attention. A man of good stature, broad at the shoulders, slender at the hips, he poised himself with athletic grace, the lower part of his face masked by what Lanyard took to be a dark silk handkerchief. 
Lanyard heard him swearing in German. Then a brisk little spray of sparks jetted from the flint and steel of a patent cigar lighter in the hands of the spy. And as Lanyard rose from his knees after ducking beneath the line, a stream of fatter sparks spat from the end of a fuse. The man leaned over the rail and cast a small black object to which the sputtering fuse was attached down to the main deck. As it struck midway between superstructure and stern, it burst into brilliant flame, releasing upon the night an electric blue glare that must have been visible from any point within the compass of the horizon. A yell of profane remonstrance saluted the light, and throughout the brief passage that followed Lanyard was conscious that pistols and rifles on the after-deck below were making him and his antagonists their targets. Before the German could face about, Lanyard, moving almost noiselessly in his bare feet, had covered more than half the intervening space. In another breath he might have had the fellow at a disadvantage, but the distance was too great. Twice the automatic blazed in his face as he closed in, the bullets clearing narrowly, or else he fancied that their deadly cold breath fanned his cheek. Then the spy's weapon in turn went out of action. Half-blinded, Lanyard clipped the man round the body and hugged him tight, exerting all his skill and strength to effect a throw. That effort failed. His onslaught was met with address and ability that all but matched his own. The animal he embraced had muscles like tempered springs, and the cunning and fury of a wild beast in a trap. For a moment Lanyard was able to accomplish no more than to smother resistance in a rib-crushing embrace. No sooner did he relax it than all attempts to shift his hold were anticipated and met halfway, forcing him back upon the defensive. Yet he was given little chance to prove himself the master. The first phase of the struggle was still in contest when the rear door of the smoking-room opened, and a man stepped out, paused, summed up the situation in a glance, seized Lanyard from behind. The adventurer felt his arms grasped by hands whose strength seemed little short of superhuman, and wrenched back so violently that his very bones cracked. Fairly lifted from his feet, he was held as helpless as an infant, kicking in the arms of its nurse. Released, the other spy stepped back and swung his left fist viciously into Lanyard's jaw. Something in the brain of the adventurer seemed to let go. His head dropped weakly to one side. The man who had struck him said quietly, "'Loose the fool, Ed,' and followed as Lanyard reeled away, striking him repeatedly. For a giddy moment Lanyard was darkly conscious as one dreams an evil dream, of blows raining mercilessly about his head and body, blows that drove him back athwartships toward a fate dark and terrible, a great void of blackness. He felt unutterably weary, and was weakened by a sensation of nausea. Beneath him his knees buckled. There fell one final blow, ruthless as the wrath of God. He was falling backward, into nothingness, into an everlasting gulf of night that yawned for him. As he shot under the guard rope and into space between the edge of the deck and the keel of the lifeboat, the spy rounded smartly on a heel and darted to the smoking-room door. His confederate was in the act of stepping across the raised threshold. He followed, closed the door. The first officer, charging aft from the bridge, 
rounded the deckhouse, and pulled up with a grunt of surprise to find the deck completely deserted. The shock of icy immersion reanimated Lanyard. He felt himself plunging headlong down, down, and down to inky depths unguessable. The sheer habit of an accustomed swimmer alone bade him hold his breath. Then came a pause. He was no more descending. For a time of indeterminate duration, an age of anguish, he seemed to float without motion, suspended in frigid purgatory. Against his ribs something hammered like a racing engine. In his ears sounded a vast roaring, the deafening voices of a thousand waterfalls. His head felt swollen and enormous, on the point of bursting wide. Without warning, expelled from those depths, he shot full half-length out of the water and fell back into the milky welter of the Assyrian's wake. Instinctively he kept afloat with feeble strokes. The cold was bitter, as sharp as the teeth of death, but his head was now clear. He was able to appreciate what had befallen him. Already the Assyrian, forging onward unchecked, had left him well astern, her progress distinctly disclosed by that infernal bluish glare spouting from her after-deck. She seemed absurdly small. Incredulity infected Lanyard's mind. Nothing so tiny, so insignificant, so make-believe as that silhouette of a ship could conceivably be that great liner, the Assyrian. Temporarily a burning pain in his left shoulder drove all other considerations out of mind. The salt water was beginning to smart in the raw superficial wound made by that assassin's bullet. Back there in the stateroom, long ago. Then the cold began to bite into his marrow, and he struggled manfully to swim, taking long, slow strokes, at first comparatively powerful, by insensible degrees losing force. Just why he took this trouble he did not know. For some dim reason it seemed desirable to live as long as possible. Withal he was aware he could not live. Whether careless or utterly ignorant of his fate, the Assyrian was trudging on and on, leaving him even farther astern, lost beyond rescue, in that weird, bleak waste. Even were an alarm to be given, were she to stop now and put out a boat, it would find him, if it found him at all, too late. The cold was killing. He felt very sleepy. Drowsily he apprehended the beginning of the end. His senses, growing numb with cold, presently must cease to function altogether. Then he would forget, and nothing would matter any more. Yet the will to live persisted amazingly. Had Lanyard wished it, he could not have ceased to swim, at least to keep afloat. Vaguely he wondered how people ever managed to commit suicide by drowning. It seemed to pass human power to resist that buoyancy which sustained one. To let go, let oneself go down. Impossible to conceive how that was ever done. Why should he care to go on living? No reading that riddle. On obscure impulse, he gave up swimming, turned upon his back, floated face to the sky, derelict, resigning himself to the cradling arms of the sea. 
the gradual slow rocking of the swells soothed his passion like a kindly opiate the cold no more irked him but seemed somehow strangely anodynous imperturbably he envisaged death without fear without welcome what must be must for all that life clutched at him with jealous hands more than ever sleepy before he slept that last long sleep he must somehow solve this enigma learn the reason why life continued to so allure his failing senses athwart the drab texture of consciousness wild fancies played like heat lightning in a still midsummer night death's countenance was kind that wide field of stars drooping low and lifting away with rhythmic motion would sometime dip swiftly down to the very sea itself and swinging back take with it his soul to some remote bourne the depths were yielding up their mysteries past him a huge pale monster swept at furious pace hissing grimly as it passed like some spectral nemesis pursuing the assyrian indifferently he speculated concerning the reality of this phenomenon the heave of a swell enabled him to glance incuriously after the steamship she seemed smaller less genuine than ever a shadow shape that boasted visibility solely through that unearthly light on her afterdeck even that now had waned to a mere glimmer the flicker of a candle lost in the immensities that night-bound world of empty sky and empty ocean even as he that had been named michael lanyard was a lost light a tiny flame that guttered toward its swift extinction why live when one might die and dying find endless rest like a blazing thunderbolt one word rent the slumberous web of sentience ekstrom galvanized by the flood of hatred unpent by the syllables of that name lanyard began again to swim flailing the water with frantic arms as if to win some whither by the very violence of his efforts this the one cogent reason why he must not could not die unjust to require him to give up life while that one lived unfair it must not be across the sea rolled a dull brutish detonation the swimmer swung high on the bosom of a great swell saw a vast sheet of fire raving heavenward from the assyrian it vanished instantly when his dazzled vision cleared he could see no more of the ship he imagined a faint wild rumor of panic voices conjured up scenes of horror indescribable as that great fabric sank almost instantaneously as if some gigantic hand plucked her under what had happened had the accomplices of the dead baron von harden set off an infernal machine aboard the vessel in the name of reason why they had got what they sought that accursed document whatever it was that page torn from the book of doom then why and to what end had they exploded that light bomb on the after-deck to make the assyrian a glaring target in the night what else a target for what of a sudden all rational mental processes were erased from lanyard's consciousness a wave of pure fear flooded him body mind and soul he began to struggle like a maniac 
fighting the waters that hindered his flight from some hideous thing that was lifting up from the ocean's ooze to drag him down. He heard a voice screaming thinly and knew it was his own. The impossible was happening to him out there, alone and helpless on the face of the waters. A shape of horror was rising out of the deep to engorge him. He could feel distinctly the slow, irresistible heave of its bulk beneath him. His feet touched and slipped upon its horrible, sleek flanks. His most desperate efforts were all unavailing. He could not escape. The thing came up too rapidly. Following that first mad thrill of contact with it underfoot, he was lifted swiftly and irresistibly into the air. Almost instantly he was floundering in knee-deep waters that parted, cascading away on either hand. Then elevated well above the sea, he slid and fell prone upon a slimy, wet surface. His clawing hands clutched something solid and substantial, an upright bar of metal. Incredulously, Lanyard pawed the body of the monster beneath him. His hands passed over a riveted joint of metal plates. Looking up, he made out the truncated cone of a conning tower with its antenna-like periscope tubes stenciled black upon the soft purple of the star-strewn sky. Slowly the truth came home. A submarine had risen beneath him. He lay upon its afterdeck, grasping a stanchion that supported the small raised bridge round the conning tower. He sobbed a little in sheer hysteric gratitude that this miracle had been vouchsafed unto him, that he had thus been spared to live on against his hour with Ekstrom. But when he sought to drag himself up to the bridge, he could not. He was too weak and faint. Ceasing to struggle, he rested in half-stupor, panting. With a harsh clang, a hatch was thrown back. Rousing, Lanyard saw several figures emerge from the conning tower. Men uncouthly clothed in shapeless, shiny leather garments straddled and stretched above him, filling their lungs with the sweet air. He tried to call to them, but evoked a mere rattle from his throat. Two came to the edge of the bridge and stood immediately over him, fixing binoculars to their eyes, their voices quite audible. A pang of despair shot through Lanyard when he heard them conferring together in the German tongue. Death, then was but a little delayed. Thereafter, he lay in dumb apathy, save that he shivered and his teeth chattered uncontrollably. Through the torpor that rested like a black cloud upon his senses, he caught broken phrases, snatches of sentences. Sinking fast! Struck square amidships! Broke her back! Trouble with her boats! There goes one over! "'Fools jumping overboard like cattle. "'What's that rocket? "'Do the swine want us to shell their boats?' "'Why not? "'They're asking for it.' "'One of the officers lowered his glasses "'and barked a series of sharp commands. "'The crew on deck leaped to attention. "'One leaned over the conning tower hatch "'and shouted to his mates below. "'A hatch forward of the tower opened, "'and a quick-firing gun on a disappearing carriage "'swung smoothly and silently up from its lair.' The officer, looking down, started violently. "'They're damned! What's this?' The first rejoined him. "'Impossible!' "'Impossible or not! A man or a cadaver! Have him up and see!' 
By order, two of the crew dragged Lanyard up to the bridge, supporting him by main strength while the officers examined him. At the last gasp, but alive, one announced. How the devil did he get out here? From the Assyrian. Impossible for any man to swim this far since our torpedo struck. Then he must have gone overboard before it struck, or was thrown. A cry of alarm from the group about the gun, awaiting final orders to open fire upon the Assyrian's boats, interrupted the conference. The officers swung away in haste. Hell's fury! What's that searchlight? A Yankee destroyer. In all probability, the one we dodged yesterday afternoon. She'll find us if we don't submerge. Forward there! How's that gun? And get below, quickly! During a moment of apparent confusion, one of the men sustaining Lanyard caught the attention of an officer. What shall we do with this fellow, sir? he inquired. Leave him there to sink or swim as we go down, snapped the officer. And be damned to him! With a supreme effort, the adventurer sank his fingers deep into the arms of the two men. Wait, he gasped faintly in German. On the Emperor's service. What's that? The officer turned back sharply. Imperial Secret Service, Lanyard faltered. Personal Division, Wilhelmstrasse Number 27. A brilliant glare settled suddenly upon the deck of the submarine and was welcomed by a panicky gust of oaths. One officer had already popped through the conning tower hatch, followed by several of the crew. There remained only those supporting Lanyard and the second officer. Take him below, the latter ordered. He may be telling the truth. If not... In the distance, a gun boomed. A shell shrieked over the submarine and dropped into the sea, not a hundred yards to starboard. The men rushed Lanyard toward the conning tower. He tried feebly to help them. In that effort, consciousness was altogether blotted out. End of chapter 8 Recording by Meg Cowan